Today is February 2nd. I believe this is February 2nd. Why? Yes, it is February 2nd. <laughs> that means it's Groundhog Day, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages. I I have to laugh every time I think of Groundhog Day. I was doing a, did a podcast yesterday and I mentioned the alligator hunter and, um, as a joke, I, I played it off, and uh, man, I hope <laughs> some things, you know, it, it you, you don't know how far you want to take your sense of humor, uh, but what fun, what fun, and everything I said about it was just so true, aching up a pen here, and I'm taking some notes on some things, and I was thinking, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to run with this. <laughs> Uh, the alligator hunter, but you know, Groundhog Day, man. I I, I come from a family, or, or did have a family that had an oddly acute sense of humor, shall we say? I'm thinking of my brother Mark today because Groundhog Day was always a day he loved. Mark loved the movie. Mark Mark was you know he was he was the one that was in the music business. Uh, he was a roadie for Henway. He did a lot of his own stuff. Uh, moving up to Texas camp, Tex uh, got into a lot of the cowboy humor, and it kind of went from there. There were some there there are some things I wish I would have recorded. Look, looking at looking at some of this um, these videos I have of my humor, I wish I would have had uh, some of the videos and some of the antics that. Uh, we had back in the day at camp. It was a wonderful time. Tex always had these great jokes. As I've said in a past podcast, I never remember the jokes. I would get, get there and laugh all week and go home and have all this material. And uh, when I'd get home, I couldn't remember any of it. But it was all situational humor. It was a type of humor like me today. I go out to the post office, and I'm trying to uh, mail a birthday card out to a friend. And I go to lick the envelope, and I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, wait, I've got this mask on. <clears throat> so I said, I said to the woman, I said, uh, what am I supposed to do here? And you're thinking about going out and melting snow. Or we taped it up. But the situational humor was that, you know, you normally would not be in that situation unless we were dealing with what we're dealing with now. That was the kind of humor Tex had. It was a cowboy humor. And then you added Mark to the mix. My brother Mark was... Uh, he was a little out there at times. He had, he, had a, he had a weird sense of humor. And just things wouldn't work right for him. And it was hilarious. He, he pulled in one time with his van he had, and he had an electrical fire in it. And I see him pull in, and I see uh, <laughs> he gets out frantically, opens the hood, and there's flames pouring out of it, and he's throwing snow on it. And I'm standing there, like, not expecting this. This just comes out of nowhere. He pulls in, and he looks at me, get a, get a bucket of water, get a bucket of water. And I'm like, Where? <laughs> That was the stuff that happened to Mark. Mark would always find humor in things. And 
Mark was a very giving soul. He was a very kind soul. He would, uh, what, what he had meant something. And what, what the, one of the greatest things he gave you was his time. That was, that was the biggest thing that he gave you. And Mark, growing up, would always take us to the movies. My brother and sister, when they were little, and myself, way before that, because I'm a lot older than my younger brother and sister. And we would see all these different movies that were playing. Star Trek, uh, a, lot, a lot of these, these movies. And he knew the people at the movie theater, so you'd walk back into the, the drive-in movie theater, and uh, you'd walk back and talk with people. you get to know them. That's what he did. Mark was a very approachable person. He'd been in the music business. He had been a private investigator. He had been a part of a lot of things. And he knew how to approach people. And he knew how to get things done. And he knew how to just be, be a human being to people. So that was the one, the one time I remember the most was we went to the movies and we saw the movie Groundhog Day. Mark was a big... Uh, Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, and uh, those type of actors, you know. He liked that, that humor of Steve Martin especially. But the Bill Murray character from going way back to Caddyshack uh, analyzed this. No, it was one where I'm sailing. I forget which one it was, but that was Mark, was... Mark was in psychology, so he liked that situational humor. And then when Groundhog Day came out, we sat there and watched it, and he laughed the whole time. And he said, you know, that's probably one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. And he, he loved the movie. So when Groundhog Day comes around, I always think about the first time I saw that movie. In the theater, at the drive-in, Mark would have this old uh, Woolrich blanket he'd throw out on the ground and he'd sit there with the radio on. He'd start talking to other people around us. He, he, it, was, it was a great time. And uh, the driving theater is not even there anymore. It's kind of sad to think about it. And all that stuff is gone and he's gone. But I think back to Groundhog Day. And I, I love Groundhog Day. Just, just read a poem about Groundhog Day. Mark had... Uh, Mark had been, and then he's a Vietnam veteran, and it was it was kind of sad the way he he passed away. He had gangrene in his leg. The veterans' hospital was supposed to be sending him a nurse to help him out, and it didn't work out that way. Needless to say, I don't know the whole extent of the situation, but when. He was dying. He wanted me to get money for him that he had saved, and I couldn't find it. And I have my own suspicions of what happened with that. But beyond that, uh, he never lost that that drive to do what he wanted to wanted to do. He said to me, "He's like, hey, you know, you want to go see the groundhog? It was the last." Uh, Groundhog Day, before he passed away. He passed away on September 1st, but he was dealing with it for many, many months. And I looked at him, and I said, you're in your wheelchair, and you're calling me the night before. 
<laughs> he never planned anything too, by the way. Never planned anything. Um, so it's the night before. You want to go there in the morning. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, where are you going to sleep? Because, oh, we'll get a motel room. No, no, you're not. <laughs> that place is booked for a year ahead of time, Mark. And he'd be, he'd be talking the whole time like this is going to happen. And you, you couldn't say you couldn't say no to the guy, really. I never went up to see the groundhog with him. He, but he wanted to go, and I'm thinking we had like three inches of snow, and I'm thinking of me trying to move him in his wheelchair to get him up there. Because he had had his other leg amputated. And I wanted to go so damn bad. I, I, even to this day, I feel so bad. I never got to do that with him, but it really wasn't possible. It wasn't like you could just pick up, drive up there for three or four hours and see the groundhog and come back and get a room. It, it's, it doesn't, you know, it, it's, at that time, it was such a big festival. People just came from all over and you had to plan stuff out. So I really missed that, but that, that's totally Mark. Mark was a big kid. He loved the music playing in, in the business, all the bands he'd played with, all the people he knew. He had fun with them. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about anything. It was about having fun. That silly nature, that silly nature that I miss the most of Mark. And he passed away something like four years to the day that my father passed away. So I have a lot of memories of people, a lot of memories of people, and a lot of really bad things, and being there with them through it. The Groundhog Day thing always reminds me of the best times. So I guess, I guess he saw didn't see his shadow or saw it, or, but anyway, we're looking at another seven years of winter, apparently. <laughs> and I uh, don't know how I feel about that. This year, does it really matter if it's summer or winter? I think we all have had our own... Uh, we've had our own fights with... But... Uh, Consider good and bad. I mean, we've had we had a year we can't do anything, so it's like every 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 day is Groundhog Day. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing over and over again. You're not going anywhere. You're going to work, yeah, but it's 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 just you're not going to the beach. You're not going. To, so what's the matter? Uh, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, of course. So I wanted I want to take that quick quick thought and just think about Groundhog Day and I just read a poem I'm not going to read it again but it was I was looking for a Groundhog Day poem and I really need to write one because there are no good Groundhog Day poems and I realized you know what what do you say about a groundhog do you do you call it my grandfather used to hunt them in the old old days people would because Groundhogs would get in the farmer's fields and they'd dig holes and your horse, your cattle, would get stuck in it and break a leg and they were a nuisance. So they called them whistle pigs because they'd whistle and they'd stick their head up and you'd shoot them and the, the old timers would eat them. But what do you write about a, a groundhog? What, what, is, what is poetic about, about a groundhog? You have to find something. So I need to, I need to spend a day 
thinking about this the next few days and write a really good Groundhog Day poem so that next year when people say, do you have a great poem to read for Groundhog's Day, I can pick out my pen right here and say, oh, why certainly right here, I wrote it with this pen. And enjoy that, enjoy that moment of saying, wow, you know, this is a silly holiday. Ginger Z was saying about how silly it is, you know, you're, she's a meteorologist and she posted something about, you know, groundhogs, people think this, this, this rodent's going to tell you what the weather is. It's like, uh, she's something about a dentist and I said, well, you know, what, what if the rodent is my dentist? <laughs> a little bit of uh, a pun in that humor there. She 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 put laugh out loud about it. It, it. it it's a strange holiday. It's one of those strange bits of Pennsylvania Dutch history that seems to have been carried on throughout uh, throughout the the history of the old folk folk medicine beliefs. And it goes back to a time when people looked at animals to give them an indicator of what the weather was going to be. The um, color of the woolly woolly worm, um, spots on a ladybug, bird, beetle. The ladybug, as most people call them. Uh, there, there was a folk way of finding. signs in nature that people today laugh at but in the old days people believed that they believed that so this this picked up over and for some strange reason this holiday became one of the biggest things that we look every february 2nd to this groundhog and expect it to uh tell us what winter's going to be or we're going to have an early spring I'm going to tell you something. Last year, that groundhog was wrong because we got a frost and my grapevine got ravaged by it. And I didn't listen to the meteorologists. I listened to this groundhog. And I'm going to tell you something. When I I was looking for that little sucker. <laughs> and I was saying, hey, Phil, you know, you, you lied to me, buddy. Uh, I don't get grapes. I don't get wine. I don't get wine. You don't get your... Groundhog poem. Come on, buddy. You know, give me a little bit of leeway here. <laughs> and I couldn't find him. I was looking everywhere for Phil. And um, <laughs> it's a happy Groundhog Day to all you. And when you have it, think of that silliness. Think of my brother Mark and how he approached life. He. Had been through a lot of rough things in his life. And he even tried killing himself one time. The girl that my father was dating at the time, it was way before I was born, happened to just stop by and saw that what he was doing, the car he had had running, and saved his life. So a lot, a lot of the music, the humor and everything in life comes from really dark times. And if you don't have that humor in dark times, it's not going to get you through anything. 
Mark was great with that kind of humor, humor that self-deprecating humor, um, looking at the situation and finding something just so rational to say, this doesn't make any sense and this silly. And one of his favorite places was up in Erie. Now on the way up, that's Philly, uh, Punxsutawney Phil is in Punxsutawney, so that's about halfway and it's off to the east a little bit, so it kind of makes the trip a little longer. But I've been through Punxsutawney a lot of times. We we take that trip, and he loved it just for that. You go up through Butler, too. And you got to Erie, and Mark appreciated it and loved it as much as I did. It was it was a it was a very powerful and important place for him to be. I'm thinking of Mark today. The last time that uh, I saw him, he wanted to go up to Erie. And I couldn't. He was in the hospital. And he says, well, when we get out, okay, Mark. And um, he never got out of the hospital. So what I did is I took his urn and I took it up to Erie. And I walked up in the peninsula and just took him on a trip because he wanted to visit it. And I laughed the whole time. Because our trips up were him riding in a car, usually at night. Turn the radio on. Oh, I don't like this station. Oh, I don't like that. And always end up being something. Throw Jimi Hendrix in, you know. Uh, he liked Meatloaf bad out of hell for some reason, too, which was strange. But Jimi Hendrix was the man. And one more thing about that. I'm driving up in the car I have now, now and it had no electrical problems at all in it. There's nothing electrical. Runs like a like a whistle. And I'm driving up, and all of a sudden, because I had like something else on, it changes to Jimi Hendrix, the station. I didn't even touch it. And I looked at it, I'm, I'm driving, and I'm like, I wish I could just pull, pulled over and just go, is this really happening? So I listened for a bit, and I changed the station. And I drive about another three miles and look right back to Jimi Hendrix. And I changed it back and it I turned it to a different station just to see what it'll do. And it went right back to Jimi Hendrix. And I thought, okay, Mark. Um it was it was a neat sign, a really neat sign. <laughs> so the other other thing I want to talk about today, I was just, just reading about this, reminiscing. And you see on your timeline on uh, one of the social media sites, it reminds you of things that had happened over this year, the year before, whatever. And it was about, it's not always accurate on the day. Sometimes it's depending on where the server is at the time. But my timeline said that the Pit Pendulum um, showed an article that I had been in, this one poetry reading. Uh, back in college. So that's at least... I've been working where I'm at for 20 years. So it's been at least 21, 22 years. Uh, and it brought back so many memories. And I wanted to look up Dr. Norman McWinney because he was the founder of it. And it was the 25th anniversary of the Pitt Pendulum at the University of Pittsburgh. 
And I, I, I did two, two poetry readings there, but this one was really special to me because he was the founder of it. He was a very affluent professor. professor. He had uh, man of poetry and letters. He taught poetry. And I was not a poetry major. I'd go and they wanted me to switch my major and I went and sat in on a few classes and I, I enjoyed them. You know, I enjoyed the, uh, the fundamentals of, of poetry. I found it to be something that I naturally have always been good at. So for me to sit there, I enjoyed the concept of it. It's a lot like if you had some somebody from back in the mountain here that didn't know chords or notes but could pick up the guitar and play what they heard. And then you try teaching them the music theory. It is something they already know. They don't need to know what a C or D or whatever chord is. They they know it, and learning it's fine because then they pick up what they've already known and can put it into a concept. But sometimes some of your best your best music and writing is beyond that. It's it's a natural given feeling for it, and you can take somebody with. The music theory and the theory of writing different ways, like villanelles, this many lines, this many syllables, uh, quatrains, uh, sonnets, okay? And you can appreciate that. Those are the theories. But other at the beginning and wholeheartedly, that is just math. The fun in it, the, 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 the real magic of it is, is the person that's writing it or the person that's playing it. I would dare anybody... To play like Jimi Hendrix. You can't do it, okay? Because Jimi Hendrix played by ear and Jimi Hendrix played with soul. When you hear Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, um, Bob Seger, uh, you name all of them, uh, Bruce Springsteen, you know it's their song. The notes, the chords, everything the same, same guitar. But that's what they put into it. And that's, that's why I didn't go into being a poetry major. I, I enjoyed it wholeheartedly. I was not going to be a university poet. I was not going to put on a suit, tie, and read uh, romantic poets, poetry or try writing it. I do write romantic poetry. I do write in all those styles. But to me, what I saw in most universities is imitation. Imitate what you read and those structures of how different poems poems are written, it's the styles, the, the the whole stanza structure, the rhyming scheme, and the onomatopoeia of it. And you're not doing your own thing. So I always said, just, just as uh, Picasso said, you have to learn and then unlearn what you learned. Which seems silly, but you start out with natural talent, and then you add the concept to it and the theory. And then you have to be able to break away and go back to what you were doing with your natural talent and be able to apply what that is. Because that's what other people have done in the past, but also you have to be able to do your own thing. That's the beauty of prose. And the beauty of prose with a rhyming scheme internal that builds upon images is, is what I've always done. 
but I knew all these people, and they, they had the, this uh, literary magazine. I'd been in many of them. And for some reason, they, they knew I was, a, I was a writer. And they said, you, you, uh, you should try out for our literary magazine. And I said, well, I'm not even a... You know, I'm not even an English major. Well, I, know, I know what happened. I remember it now. Randy Kasky, my psych professor, wonderful lady, one of my people in uh, Mount Olympus, teachers. Randy Kasky's right up there. She's like the goddess Athena, wisdom, you know. And uh, she said, because she's, I'd sent her some of the stuff I'd written. My all my teachers would, for some reason, read my stuff, and I. She said, "You ought to, you ought to get in this pendulum thing." And I'd even talked about changing my major, and she says, "Well, is that what you want to do?" And I said, "No, I want to. I like psychology. I think there is psychology in a lot of the poetry I write." And I said, "You know, when I was in Capstone." way back in high school, you took a lot of classes. You took science, math, history, all these. But when I was doing field testing in the stream, I needed the math, I needed the chemistry, I needed the science, I needed the history of knowing where I was at. And I learned how to apply, apply it across the board where you don't normally find in Western education is they teach you these subjects, but they don't teach you where they all inter intertwine with one another. The matrix of it all. And I said, to me, psychology is my thing, but it intertwines with sociology, anthropology, and writing. So I was like, a, those are my four majors, but I always went for psychology. And she said, well, Dr. Norman McWhitley is going to be here for this one, and it'll be really great if you get to go. She said, I'd sign up for it. She says, just, just if you go to hear him read, she's like he, he's, he's, a professor that had been here. He's retired, and she said he. Just, just do this for yourself. And she talked me into it, so I, I got a hold of a few of the people I knew that were involved, and what the heck, you know, what the hell, I submitted submitted a couple of pieces. And they were accepted, and there's there's me, you know, on that magazine that I just read on the front page and it it was a wonderful night of poetry reading I, I started out I had to be up there it was at, at night like seven at night or something like that it was dark so I had to get my mind in the mood for it that, that day and age I didn't give a lot of readings I, I play in a couple bands and sing and stuff but to do it in front of an audience is so personal. You're up there at a podium looking at all these people. And it's not like a slam poetry. It's a, it's a university poetry reading. It's a very formal setting with informal dress. And it's kind of out of my comfort zone a little bit. So I walked around and I just walked around the one part of the campus. And I thought to myself, all the people in my life that it believed in me that I was representing. And I thought of them, and I thought, well, okay, if I'm going to go up here and read this these poems representing myself, I'm representing them too. So I got my mind in a very zen state. 
And I heard other people read, and I, I assume I did well, I don't know. And afterwards, I, after we were done, Dr. Norman McWintley got up and he read. And I saw a difference between how he read and we read. He was, he had nothing to prove to anybody. He was off the cuff, he was very personal, very witty, and very uh, in-depth with what he was reading and the story behind it. And he'd have stuff he had written on a napkin at a restaurant, just a thought that came to him, and he'd read it with a way that was impactful. It wasn't about the scientific structure of what he was reading. And I really, really enjoyed it. I was glad that Randy said to me to do it. I was glad that Sheila Confer said it was a good idea. And Dr. Sheila Confer, I should say. And afterwards, I, I, well, you know, there's a bunch of people reading. So I was kind of, you know, standoffish. I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, writing major, kind of shy, and I saw him and said, hey, that was pretty good, I like that, you know, just, just to make a connection, just to talk, and he goes, you're, he said to me, he says, you're reading I really liked, and I, I'm not bragging about it, because I, I thought everybody was good, but he, he said that to me, and he said, I'm going to tell you something, he says, these words always stuck with me, he said, don't, don't sell yourself short, he says, you have real talent. And he said, uh, keep writing that kind of stuff you wrote. He says, it was free verse. I said, yeah. And he said, you're going to get a lot of people in your life that are going to rejection letters. He said, I have a whole stack of them. And he says, you know what you do? He said, I did this. He said, and I don't know if you really did or not, but he said, you take all those rejection letters and you get a table and you lay them all out. He said, then you get the one that's an acceptance letter. You're published. Your book made it. This company wants to publish your book. He said, you sit that one right, right on top of the mall. You laminate it. And you put a big piece of plastic on it, whatever you want to do. So you get the scope of how many times people didn't believe in you, but the one time they did. That, that was that was great. I love that. I love that that analogy of what to do, how to take, how to take it. And he didn't mean that not not to take those rejection letters. It's not like oh, I'm going to do this. I'm great. I'm the greatest. You know. He meant to take it um, for growing and learning from rejection, growing and learning from the experience of it. And, you know, a lot of people go off thinking they're a wonderful writer, a wonderful singer, whatever. And there's a lot of people that uh, have huge egos. What that shows you is to let go of ego. It stuck with me. And I, I saw that he passed away, Mr. Um, McWinney, Dr. Norman McWinney. In uh, 2017, I was just looking it up, and I remember seeing it and hearing about it, but I really 
in my mind just replayed this. Maybe someday, I was just reading, they got spinach that can send emails. Maybe someday they'll be able to tap into your brain and, you know, put some of this stuff that you didn't record and put it out there. That that was that was phenomenal. That was that was one time that I really enjoyed the whole evening. I've had many, 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 many poetry readings since then. Different places, different venues, um, some good settings, some not. But it it really struck me that night to be able to be there and celebrate the twenty fifth anniversary of this literary magazine that this guy had started as a professor. I, in high school, had started one with several of my classmates. We had a teacher that said to us that he was a good friend of mine. Teacher was, I consider him a friend. He, he said, you know, we having us read these different novels. He said, nobody's getting this. Guys are coming in. You're reading this, you're feeding it back to me, and you're not capturing what I want you to get out of this novel. And I I stayed after class, and I said to him, I said, you know, that really was a tough thing to say. It's because we're all, we have all these classes, we're on the timeline, and I said, you know, I love all these authors, but they're all dead. And I said, if you want, just do me, do me a favor. I said, just take, take, Take away a book. Let them write something. See what their capability is. And if you build that, if you build that step, the next step is going to be where they have the self-confidence and they can see that this class is not just reading books. There's life in those books. And he looked at me like I was nuts. <laughs> he says, you really want to do this? I says, I'll tell you. I says, putting the faith into people and letting them write something. And he said, okay. So I, I submitted some of my own stuff to this literary magazine. I let other people really run it. I believe they were the people that ran the yearbook or the news. I don't know what it was. It was very amateurish. It was very high school. But the poems are, I have a copy here. The poems were wonderful. And, uh, I believe it was called A Window to the Mind. Let me look. A Window to the Mind. Oh, Lasting Impressions. Window to the Mind was another one. But, um, yeah, I have it right here. But Lasting Impressions was, was a great liter, little literary magazine. I don't know if that carried on, but to be able to have something carry on beyond your own tenure is, is in and of itself power of words a literary magazine that McWhitley did was very similar because it was putting faith back in people and like the one I did I, my teacher said to me he said you know there's a lot of really great writers here I'm really really surprised you impressed me and taught me something so hopefully that's been carried on I don't know well, that, that literary magazine was the ability to get writers together on a certain night 
in a university setting at the podium to read and show off some of what the university had taught. So hearing of Mr. McWinney's passing, I just wanted to do this little thought and shout out to his memory. If you ever get a chance, look up his writing. You, you will not be disappointed. One of the people that he, he um, believed in his students and he put, he, he was a groundbreaker. He was the guy that paved the way. Pretty nice. There's another name right there I can think of of the people that I represent.